Hello there, and welcome to episode 18 of the Indie by Design podcast, the show about games and the people who make them. In each weekly episode, we sit down with interesting people to talk about them, their work, and their outlook on games. The Indie by Design podcast is brought to you by Stace Harmon and John Robertson. You can reach us on social media and on YouTube at Indie by Design. You can also visit us at IndieByDesign.net, where you'll find more podcast episodes and details of our big yellow book, Independent by Design, Art and Stories of Indie Game Creation. Do also check us out on Patreon.com slash Indie by Design, where we're forming a wonderfully symbiotic relationship with our listeners and where you can get involved too. This episode of the podcast is hosted by me, Stace Harmon, and features James Cox and Mike Daly, General Manager and Head of Development at Yo-Yo Games, creators of the Game Maker Studio toolset. That makes this week's podcast episode a bit different to the norm, because while we usually speak to the people behind the games, this week we're speaking to the people behind the people behind the games. The first iteration of Game Maker, called Animo, was released by Mark Overmars in 1999. Since then, it's gone through dozens of iterations on its way to Game Maker 8.1 before becoming the multi-platform supporting Game Maker Studio in 2012, and now, as of March 2017, Game Maker Studio 2. Many, many games that you'll have heard of and probably played have been created using this software, and so we sat down with James and Mike to talk about helping developers create many a memorable title, the democratisation of tools, learning on the job, combating hackers and piracy, and much, much more. We start this week's episode with discussion of what it is that Yo-Yo Games wants to achieve with Game Maker Studio 2 and the company's approach to standing out in a crowded marketplace. I guess there's a few parts to it and making game making accessible is a big part of it. Especially we specialise in 2D games. So we try to make an engine that students and hobbyists and professional developers can all pick up very, very quickly and use it to make full games, to make their passion projects, or even to just make prototypes sometimes. Mm. Yeah, um, since GameMaker have started, I mean, it's obviously been going for a long time now. Um, its whole goal really is to, is to try and get as many people making games as possible and making it as simple as possible. Um, a lot of the big indie guys kind of started out um, in bedrooms or in colleges, universities, um, and have kind of grown up with the tool and got an experience with it and got into great things with it. And it's to really help people from that beginning of the journey all the way through um, is what we kind of aim to do. And it's good if, you know, if we can provide a nice selection of materials and tools for a starting base so that you can, to start with, go to one place, get the tools and the information you need to get started without having to go to lots of different websites and lots of different tools providers. Now, when you become more experienced, then you can start to branch out into more specialist tools and they can all work together. But I know a long time ago when I started out in the games industry, a long, long time ago, (laughs) finding all the right materials was quite tricky. And so now, with all the facilities we have available, it should be really easy to get started. And that's what we spend a lot of effort trying to do. That, I mean, that all makes an awful lot of sense. And I think the the people that we've spoken to, um, not just for the podcast, but also um, 
my writing partner and I, John Robertson, we uh, wrote a book called Independent by Design, which featured about 26 independent developers, um, many of whom, going through the Game Maker showreel, uh, have used your tools. And something that some of those guys talked about, something that Graham Struthers at Devolver Digital talked about, was this idea that really... I mean, he put it quite bluntly that if you're not making games, if you want to make games and you're you're not making games now, then that's like that's just crazy because it is so much more accessible than it has been even five or six years ago. Like the the number of tools that are out there, this kind of democratization mm-hmm. of tools over the past few years has has led to this sort of explosion of indie developers and and games. Um, mm-hmm. Do you guys ever get involved in like, because it seems now that the challenge with all all of that in mind, the challenge now seems to be not so much making a game, but making a good game and one that kind of stands out and that can be discovered. Do you guys kind of ever get involved in that side of the, um, not in terms of marketing, but I guess just in terms of, of helping people distinguish their games in what is becoming an increasingly crowded marketplace? Not directly. I mean, the the game devs themselves obviously have their own vision and, and make um, whatever game they're after. Um, really, the thing that we do to help them is to make the tools as powerful and flexible as possible. If the tools can't do the job to you know help them make the game, then they spend more time making the tech than they do the game. Um, so with GMS2, we, we took a... a a big kind of change in direction from what we had before to try and make the editors a lot more powerful so that it took yet more tech away from them having to worry about it so they could concentrate more and more on just producing the games and effects that they actually wanted. Um, The more powerful the tool and the quicker it is, obviously, then the less you have to worry about it when you're making your game. And I think there's, there's, there's other smaller pieces to that puzzle as well that we do try and help out with. So we, we put up the showcase games on our website, not just for our own sake, but also to help inspire others, to show the sorts of things that are possible. And when you see ideas from other people, often it will spark ideas within yourself or it will give you some influences where you actually take your idea in a, in a better direction. And then, of course, there's the GMC, the Game Maker Community, where we, we try, we, we, we host it, but we try to stay out of it. We try to let the community talk amongst themselves. And occasionally we'll, we'll dip in a little cheekily and we'll, we'll help out and nudge people in the, in the right direction. Well, one of the great things that I imagine a lot of people have found with the Game Maker Community is it's, it's very active and it's generally very honest and very open. And so, you know, you can ask a question about Game Maker, but you can also ask a question about your game. You can ask a question about the, the, the piece of design work that you've just done, and people will give their opinions. And often that can be a great way to then iterate your ideas and improve them. Um, I mean, mm. we also kind of do lots of tech things. You know, we have lots of tech articles on our site. Um, that again are things that will then go on to help somebody do their game, um, some particular effect or some way of actually building a, a better engine and so on. Um, we do that quite a lot, and that's helped, you know, change how somebody's building it 
from a limited implementation to something that's a lot more well-rounded, um, and that can like, lead on again to the game being a lot more kind of complete and full. I mean, these guys here, they quite often do things that surprise me. So I'm far less technical. I'm not on the technical side of the business, uh, but I've been in the games industry and I've made games in the past. And just seeing one of the latest tech demos from the chaps here showing projected shadows in 2D top-down was just great. Never even occurred to me that you could do that kind of thing in Game Maker. And it looked fantastic. And it was relatively straightforward to do as well. So as Mike says there, yeah, lots of little pieces that we can do and show people how features can work and how features they may not have considered can be added into their games. That's another piece to the puzzle for helping people make something a bit different and helping them realize their vision as well. Yeah, and I think that's a very important um, distinguishing factor because maybe once upon a time, going back to perhaps the, the 80s and 90s of the bedroom coders, that is kind of the sort of uh, slightly romanticized and perhaps also slightly, it's the most typical image that is conjured up when you talk about people coding games on their on their own or in very, very small teams. Yes. Um, but it, it seemed like at that point it was much more isolated. So you might have the tools, um, and I, I don't uh, imagine there was anything quite as accessible as, as, as the tools that we have nowadays. Yeah. But even if you had the, the sort of the knowledge and the skill to do it, it still seemed like a very, or a, a potentially very isolated and isolating activity. Because, of course, you could go out and you could meet up with people in a, in a shared space mm-hmm. and you could talk and you could sort of chew over ideas. But... Now, with with the communication tools that we have and just you know, you know the internet, yeah. it's there isn't really that notion, I guess, of just working on your own in your bedroom unless you really, really want to do it that way. Yeah. And it sounds like you guys kind of offer a not just the tool set, but also kind of a an environment or like a, an ecosystem to facilitate just people gathering virtually or otherwise, but to to just chew over ideas and is that like going back um over the last few years and you're you've been building up game maker and and as you mentioned there's now game maker studio 2 is that something that was always developed that kind of environment side of it is that something that was always developed hand in hand with the tool set or is that something that has become more important over time like is that something that you guys have had to learn on the job as it, well it kind of grew organically when the guy that, that first wrote game maker mark Overmars, started and he started giving the tool out then there was obviously people that started up and they needed a place to to talk so he started a small forum and they would go on and discuss the tool and i mean gaming has been going since 1999 so you know it's mm. it's had a long time to grow organically um and while we've taken the forums forward from um, what it was and, and making it a, a, a bit of a nicer place to be, it's it's always kind of been there as far as game maker goes. You know, it's just gotten bigger and bigger as we pulled more and more people in, um, and as the tools got more powerful, we start to get higher and higher quality people in as they start to use the tool for more professional um, needs, um, which again helps all the beginners because they've got all these people that really know what they're doing and helping them ask the, answer the questions. 
So it's just been this organic growth from pretty much day one, really. I think that was founded in 2003. So you had a few years of just releasing, and then you had the basic forum. Yeah. And and that's, I mean, you mentioned that it, it was kind of first created in 99. And, and how much of GMS's development and evolution is kind of in response to the changes that you see in the video game industry? And how much of it is, uh, I guess, sort of trying to bring about those changes? There's, it seems like there's sort of a proactive and a reactive element to the tool iteration um but how does that is that kind of is that a fair assessment like how does it work for you guys internally at at yo-yo well we we do look at the trends and we do look at what people need to make games and then we do also apply our professional opinion and make some guesses you know make some estimations of what people are going to need in the future one of the things that we try to stick to, though, is that it's a very difficult thing to describe, and you can't, it's, it's very, certainly to business people, it's very hard to describe the heart and soul of Game Maker. Uh, what is it? What is it for? So we try to stick to that where it's 2D games, and it can be used in education. It can be used to educate yourself just because you're interested, but it also then can be used to have fun with your own personal projects. And then probably the biggest thing from, because I'm quite new to Game Maker, I've only been here about a year now, and some of these guys have been here seven years. And one of the things I've learned that has been a real strategy uh, over the last five years or so is pushing out the boundaries of the tool. So it's always been a great tool for education. It's always been a great tool for people to learn and for people to start making their passion project. Now it's a good tool for you to finish your passion project. It's a good tool for you to then step on and make your first proper professional game. So that's probably one of the things that is an actual strategy rather than just reaction to the way the games industry is gone and the, the indie industry is gone and an education. Making a tool that actually can make games that can win awards, that can be commercially highly, highly successful. So that's something that has really been concentrated on and has then started to pay the dividends for people. All those names you mentioned has been paying dividends for those people for several years now. And I would say that's a great thing because it's also aspirational for everybody else out there who thinks, right, I want to start making games. Where could it go? I mean, from when we started the kind of redesign of things, um, it's slightly ironic that a lot of these... um, indie games are, are going back to more or less the tech that we had, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm. Um, and a lot of the stuff that we did back then, we're kind of bringing that tech back into a much more accessible form um, and designing a lot of the editors to, to pull the power that we had to do all the same kind of games. But I mean, we were obviously writing them on machines that were only a few megahertz in speed. We've now got all this power 
So we bring the same tech forward, which means that you know we had all the power to do it um, enough back then for you know tile sets and tile layers and all this kind of stuff. Whereas doing it now on the bigger machines means that again it opens up how they can do all the games and gives them more power to do things. Um, so we've we've had this eye towards the the past in terms of they're trying to do these games that we used to do. The tech that we used back then was super successful, so we'll kind of replicate that um, on modern machines, but then keep an eye towards all the future hardware and what the tech can do to make it even more powerful than it was. So there's definitely a bit of bringing the past forward and modernising it, and then keeping an eye to the future to make sure you know you're not closing off to do anything. We'll make sure all the shaders are there. You could do some really complicated effects if you need to but wrapping it all up in a way that everybody can get access to it rather than in, like in the past where it was really hard for anybody to get in, into this stuff. You mentioned there about kind of the tech side. I do I have very fond memories of uh, playing the, the very first Secret of Monkey Island game that I remember quite vividly on the front of the box, the big cardboard boxes as they were in those yeah. days. Um, it, it said on the front of it that it required one megabyte of memory to <laughs> t- to play, uh, and my computer at the time, which I think was a, an Atari STE or something, had like five hundred five hundred meg, not at all half a meg rather. <laughs> um, and yeah, so this this like, this kind of explosion of tech, and you know, of course, that's nothing new. We see it in 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 um in everyday life, not just video games. But it's it's good to I think sometimes be reminded that. Within living memory, things were uh, very, very, very different. Um, but that that aside, the is the the this idea of kind of fashions is that something that you guys see much of? You mentioned kind of the the old style games, and even the way of making those old style games has kind of come back around. Is a fashions something that you, if you indeed you would call it that, but a fashion something that you guys, as people that make tools to help people make games. Is that something that you have to be sort of hypersensitive to or, or not really? I don't think we need to be hypersensitive to it. There's, there's definitely fashions and trends to game genres that they come and go and big corporations right down to indie developers can often follow the, the trends and fashions. I guess we just try to make sure that we can cater. If somebody wants to make a particular type of game in 2D, we want to make sure that they can make that game. So one of the one of the developers we know uh, been making a dungeon crawler and procedurally generating his levels. And one of the things he's taking advantage of now is that he can have hundreds and hundreds of enemies and sprites wandering around the room because you've got the power to do that now. And it just gave a whole new type of gameplay to his particular dungeon crawler. And we just want to make sure that we give the features that enable that type of thing. So if you want to have 500 objects and sprites running around uh, the screen at once because that's what's chasing you, great, here you go, no problem, 60 frames a second. If there's something else that somebody wants to do, then we try and cater to that as well. I mean, in, in the past, the, most of the genres, for, particularly for 2D, were kind of well-defined. And they kind of died out a little bit because, as I said, they, they were quite hard. So they needed quite a bit of understanding of it. 
But now that the mm. tools are letting the tech be decided by somebody else and it's really easy, then you see a lot of these games coming back. Um, so you're getting your shooters back, you're getting your dungeon crawlers, you're getting your platformers. Um, they're all starting to resurface with a lot more gloss and polish that, that used to happen um, because the tools are making it so much more accessible. Um, they don't have to worry about the tech. They just make the game throw whatever they want at it and the tech just deals with it. When So if we have a quick run through, I mean, there's many, many games, many, many, many games that have been made with... Uh with Game Maker Studio, but big ones that I guess, or big ones, but ones that people will immediately recognise. There's, so, Hotline Miami, Gunpoint, Nidhogg, Spelunky, Downwell, Hyperlight Drifter, 12 is Better Than 6, Risk of Rain, the list goes on and on and on. Mm. Cook Serve Delicious, I was surprised to see on there. Um, And even I noticed a game that I backed uh, on Kickstarter called Orphan, which um, at the time I don't think I I knew was being uh, game mm. was being used for that, but that's that's another one that's that it was also being used for. All of these games, um, they yes they are two D, but they have their own very very specific aesthetic and visual identity. And I think sometimes when we speak to developers, they talk about certain game engines or, or tool sets that uh, it's quite easy for all of the games that are created using that toolset to look very similar to each other. And it's easy to point to it and say, oh, okay, yeah, it's e- we can identify what what toolset was used to make that game. Um, now, you've mentioned about kind of giving, facilitating this, um, the variety and the, the depth and the breadth of of game type and of of visual style and and all of that that developers have access to is that something that you think comes from how experienced the developer is so that they can focus more on that side of kind of creating a more visual um, a more unique visual identity for their games or is that something that comes from approaching game maker with a very specific idea of what it is you want to make and kind of searching out the bits in gms that help you to do that yeah i think i mean when game maker 8 was out um, most of the games kind of looked the same you could look at a game and go that's a game maker game Um, when we start to do studio and we start to introduce more elements to you know make things easier then you started to get a, a different art styles appearing because it was easier to do um, now as we kind of move on and like say games like Orphan and stuff that um, have a very different style we, um, they're using spine to do all their animations, they've got shaders in the background all this is, are things we put in so that you're not doing retro because that's all the engine can do, you're maybe doing a, you know, a retro pixel game because that's the style you want and that's the way indie games in general are going now everything's so powerful that you can decide what, how you want the game to look, and it's usually just down to the artist to go, I want it to look like this, and the tool, as long as it's, all, it's easy enough to do, then that, that's the style they'll, they'll come up with. Um, so I think for the most part, whoever's doing the game will decide prior to starting the game how it's going to look, and while it might evolve through you know, indie games, in general, take a long time to write, particularly the ones that are written in um, bedrooms. You know, they will take years, so the game will evolve over time. But it's all down to the indie deciding this is what I want it to look like, 
because the various engines that they're using don't get in the way and allow them to do their, their vision of it. Yeah, I mean, you look at up and coming, Nidhogg 2 looks different from its uh, predecessor a bit, and then it looks mm-hmm. different, very different from sort of Ditto that's, uh, that was talked a lot mm. at um, E3. So there's, it's great, there's all sorts of styles, and just from some of the developers we talk to, a lot of the time it comes from their background as well. If they're very programmer orientated, then they'll tend to have uh, certain types of styles. If they're very art orientated, they can have all sorts of styles. Mm. I mean, there have been many versions of, of Game Maker, as you sort of alluded to there. It went up to, it uh, was 8, I believe 8, 8 was the last. the last one, was it? Yeah. 8.1, 8. right, okay. And before that, way back when, in 99, um, it started as yeah. Animo, um, and then went through all the, the Game Maker iterations. Do you guys, from an external perspective, game whether it's called Game Maker or Game Maker Studio, is, to my sort of, in, my, in layman's terms, uh, sort of much of a muchness to me. It's, it doesn't... Um, it's just a, a tool set that may have grown more powerful over time. But internally, is there a big sort of distinction for you guys between Game Maker and Game Maker, and then sort of the Game Maker Studio series? No, oh, definitely. I mean, Game Maker was just Windows, um, and it was all written in Delphi, including the runner. Um, performance was not great, um, but it had the core, you know, event-based engine that, that everything's built around. But it was it was very basic. When we went to Game Maker Studio, the runtime that ran on all the different platforms was rewritten in C, C++. Um, we allowed you to export to all these different platforms. Um, we had you know all the store possibilities. And the whole thing was built around being able to take your game onto lots of different platforms and sell it. So it was a big step up from this tool that people could play with at home, run it on a Windows machine, and that'd be a pretty powerful Windows machine, really to do anything significant, uh, to something that was just, you know, the, the lid was ri- lifted off it, and it was cross-platform. So there was a big step up from 8.1 to Studio. I wonder how then do you, how uh, tempting is it to keep iterating? Because again, as I, as I mentioned at the top, we, we speak to a lot of developers primarily, and they are, it's kind of the norm, or increasingly has become the norm, to release a game, um, maybe it's in early access or maybe it's just a, a general full 1.0 release, um, but then to keep iterating on that, and that might be in the form of weekly patches or you know monthly fairly big feature updates. How does that work for you guys? Are you able to still... I'm kind of looking through mm-hmm. the version history here and seeing that it is... I mean, it's sort of every... Uh, what every six months to a year there is some some update going on so how um is that something you guys have to be careful of in terms of updating because people are making lots of different types of games with your tool set and it's uh there's there's more danger of breaking something for somebody because they're using it in a certain way when you're updating um or is that i mean you guys have been doing it for a long time now so i guess that you've kind of got that down but how does that work sort of internally when you're how do you i guess how do you stop how do you say right that's enough for this version we have to just push this patch out and we'll save the rest of this stuff for the next one like how, do, how does your sort of internal yeah workflow for for updates actually maker is is a constantly iterating tool um every two or three months we will do 
you know, a feature of some sort that, um, to help extend um, what is in it already. Um, we've got loads of ideas that will take us years and years to implement. So it's really just picking the ones that we think people will use most, trying to roll that in. And when it comes to testing things, uh, we deal an awful lot with the, the, the bigger games to help them get through console certification and all that kind of stuff. Um, so we use all these games um, to test and make sure nothing is broken. Um, and so we, have a, we have a QA team as well in-house. So okay. everything is tested continually, really. We do do some minor updates in between the bigger releases as well. So rather than saving everything up for a whole year and possibly putting in a load of breaking changes, we will do some minor updates along the way. We can't stand still. I mean, we get feature requests from people and we have plenty of ideas ourselves. So it's, we don't feel that it's something we can stand still with. We run through compatibility testing with external companies as well. And <clears throat> we also have automated tests. So, yeah, as you say, <laughs> Yo-Yo Games itself has been releasing uh, updates for a long time now. We're certainly not perfect very few companies are, but we keep improving and we put a lot of emphasis on the testing and, and the coders testing what they do as well. And then when there is a bug, people will let us know and we hunt it down and we fix it and we, we, we release an update or a patch to make sure it's sorted. Yeah, and also quite big on um, backward compatibility. So even things that you know we might not have liked in Game Maker 8, that people have taken forward into studio and they're still doing the game, and they take it forward into GMS2, then much of this will keep working. Um, we try very hard not to make breaking changes in things like the language itself. And so then on top of the, the kind of the technical changes, there's also been, um, I don't know, social changes maybe, or, or things that you've also had to contend with uh, so things like hackers and pirates and all of you know various other digital ne'er do wells and whatever it might be. Um, how does that side? I mean, again, is it a case for you guys of sort of learning on the job and just is it difficult to foresee on that side specifically? Is it difficult to foresee what people might come up with next in order to try and do things like reverse engineer stuff and that that kind of. Uh, event, but is that a, a sort of a, a difficult thing to to foresee? And, and is that sort of just a question of you guys, yeah, learning on the job and 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 just trying to make things as secure as possible and reacting to the things as quickly as possible, if and when things do go wrong, um, kind of wrong deliberately, not wrong mm. accidentally, because somebody's decided to uh, stick a spanner in the works. It depends what aspect it is, really, whether it's to do with forums or our website or the actual code in Game Maker. Yes, in general, we have expertise we can call upon and we tackle the problems as they come up. You know, you're never, ever going to eliminate piracy. We certainly don't want to do anything that hurts our legitimate community and people who you know, love to use our software, whether it's the free trial or whether it's the paid-for versions. So we'd be a little bit careful what we do there with respect to piracy and, and hacking and things. But yeah, like you say, you continue to learn and you continue to respond.
Welcome to the Indie by Design podcast halftime show, which this week is actually situated around two thirds of the way through the episode. But it's our podcast and we'll splice where we want to. If you're interested in gaining more insight into game design and game designers, be sure to check out our website, indiebydesign.net, where you'll find more episodes of the Indie by Design podcast and our book available for purchase, plus lots more besides. If you have suggestions, questions or feedback on the podcast, you can get in touch via social media by looking us up at Indie by Design. Claps on the back, podcast reviews on your platform of choice and throwing money at us via our Patreon page are all things that we heartily condone and celebrate. On to the second part of our discussion with Mike and James now. And we begin with my own amateur experience with Game Maker Studio 2 and how that relates to Yo-Yo's broader goals for the toolset. So I downloaded it the other day and, and started just playing around with it and I have, well, barring some very out-of-date database SQL from a, a previous professional existence. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no programming knowledge whatsoever. So the thing, I think the thing for me was, having installed it, having watched some of the tutorial videos, was that it it feels approachable. And I feel that that is... There's two different things, I think. There's, the, there's making something that is easy to use, um, and then there's making something that is not only easy to use but that kind of invites people in or at the very least doesn't scare them away because it's it's all good and well kind of making something that's easy to use but it needs to look like it's easy to use as well if that makes sense so if you're making something that is um like once people get into it it's easy to use then that's that's fine but they that they might be put off in the first place so i suppose the 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 question in all of this uh waffle is how do you guys how much do you focus on kind of that not just oh well this is an easy thing to use people just need to sort of learn how to use it but also the 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 front end sort of user experience of this needs to be as as yeah as inviting and as approachable as possible when we were doing gms2 we we did a lot of focus testing um with the local university we got some students in um a lot of them were designers, artists who, you know, had never done anything like this before. Uh, we got lots of feedback about things, about where they got stuck and what would help them along and so on. Um, so the initial introduction part um, we take pretty seriously in terms of, you know, you want people to install it and get at least into making something before they decide they, they do or don't like it. Um, and once we got, you know, artists, designers in and actually using the tool, they were really enjoying doing it. Um, and I think as soon as you've got them to that point where they can kind of actually try it out and you know get something working, something visible on screen, then you'll probably get them hooked because it's, it's a, I mean, programmers obviously know this um, by heart, but it's, 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 it's a very rewarding experience seeing that you've made something move about on the screen, you've made something do what you think it should be doing. So it's just that initial experience part of getting them into it. Um, and we, we did lots of testing on that to, to try and smooth the way. It can obviously be improved a lot, um, but I think we've got a very good initial starting point for it. And we try to be very visual with as many approaches as we can. So that's that's the sort of one of the starting principles. As well as all the developers here, we have a full-time UI artist who's also a UX, you know, user experience expert as well. And we've just taken on a second one just recently. So 
that's something that I found myself that if a programmer sits and builds a tool on their own, it'll be very different than if an artist and a programmer and other people get involved and sit there and build the tool. And we try to have that variety of people involved in building most of the things that we make. And it does seem to make a, a good difference. Mm. Yeah, and you know, again, drawing parallels with kind of developers, game developers that we've spoken to, I think that's there's they echo that idea of um, what makes sense to them as a designer, and even getting feedback from another game designer is going to be very different to the feedback they're going to get from perhaps the people who will actually be playing their game. So, kind of the end users, and it's it's not kind of. Oh, I guess almost it's not good enough just to say, well, that makes sense to me or to you as a um, experienced, learned uh, game designer. You know, it needs to be something that that kind of makes sense to if you want to if you want an approachable yeah. game. It needs yeah. to be something that makes sense to anybody that can pick it up. And and it sounds like it's a similar thing, like the idea of reaching out to students and having them um, um, kind of play around with it. Uh, many of those students may be kind of in their in their sort of professional infancy in terms of yes. actually they may have played a lot of games but not tried to develop a lot of games so that's a that's a, that sounds like it's a really key point and a really well a really good idea if you know if nothing else but does that kind of go back to your roots as a company that kind of the ties to to university and and obviously with Mark over Mars as well is that something that has kind of just been always uh it's kind of inherent to to game makers and, and now sort of yo-yos um and um, it's not really so much students as community um when we were designing all the ui um you have to design it in terms of this is what we think is really good but be um aware that you know once it's out in the wild nobody might like it so you've got to get as much feedback as you can. Um, prior to it launching, um, we obviously couldn't tell anybody about it who wasn't under NDA, so it was really hard to get the community involved uh, in the very early stages. Um, the universities mm. obviously got um, some great people that are just up and coming, who are beginners in these things, who are much like the community. So we do call on the university to test things for us quite a, a bit because they're a really good pool of um, information from uh, these kind of aspects. But now that it's out, we also go back to the community and ask them what they'd want as well. So we do pull from lots of different sources to see how we can improve on our initial ideas of things to make it more accessible. And while we might not agree with some of them, we might go down the original line, if everybody's saying you should be doing it this way and we're not, then you know, you've got to admit that you're probably wrong on this and you have to be willing to change. Um, and I think as long as you, you're willing to do that, then you'll always iterate towards a better product. And that's what we keep aiming to do. Mm. That's, yeah, I like that idea of it. It's kind of, it's not, you're not necessarily gathering and polling the opinions of game developers. You're just gathering the opinions of potential users of... Yeah. And first-time users of Game Maker Studio, and that there's quite yes, a big difference yeah, in those two things, right? Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. So, okay. So looking at some of the, you know, I, I kind of ran through a very uh, truncated list of games, titles that have been have been made using, using Game Maker and Game Maker Studio. Um, how much do you guys, how much do you guys kind of see these games in development? Is it is it something that people kind of take your tools and, and they, they um, maybe do the trial first and then they, they buy the the license up front how much of it is kind of them taking those tools away with them and kind of doing their thing and then you see what comes out the other end of it and how much do you guys how much can you sort of genuinely get to see things being created um on sort of an iterative it totally depends on the developer i mean some of them are very much active in social media and that we know about them we'll follow them and we'll see their updates that they're posting and the kind of games that they're doing um, there was one that was on Kickstarter, Nycra. Nycra, yes. Um, which we've been following for a while, uh, which looks really nice. And, and, you know, from its infancy, we've been following that because we were aware of it. But the, at the same time, you know, there's, there's people that buy the tool or use the tool at home in a bedroom that we won't hear anything about until the game comes out because that's just the way they work. Um, so if it's public and if they're, you know, showing up-and-coming work, then we'll try and find them and, and follow to see how they're getting on. Once it gets to um, actually being released, we tend to get feedback from them because they'll need help with perhaps going to console submissions, um, trying to get some kind of support for a mobile device or something like that. So they will tend to make contact if they're having issues. And we do it. We invite people to submit to the showcase as well. So we certainly welcome looking at uh, what people are making, and it's just great fun to see all the different things that people create it's just beautiful to see mm. and because i guess those showcases work both ways right there's like a symbiotic thing it works for you guys to be able to say this is what's been this is the sort of the breadth of things that have been created using gms and it also works for those people who are in that showcase because they're getting their game highlighted and, and as we sort of alluded to earlier that issue of discoverability it's just another way that people can uh get their game out in front yeah, of certainly. Um, we, we have a, a lot of throughput on our website, so we're very happy showcasing people. And you know, we certainly hope that they get some good visibility from that. Definitely. Yeah. And the um, is there a is there a sort of a we mentioned again earlier about the idea of sort of a, a certain engine or tool set style is it possible for you guys is it easy for you guys to look at games that those games that you mentioned that perhaps the developer has taken the tools away and created something and been sort of super quiet about it and not really mentioned anything when it comes out when you see games in motion before you perhaps see a splash screen saying gms can you guys tell are you are you able to just see that games have been made using your tools um (laughs) Not always, no. No, um... <laughs> you know, it's 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 very difficult with some uh, with many games to see what tool are they made in unless unless there's a splash screen, because mm. you know you can make beautiful high definition two D art in many game engines, you, including ours. You can make pixelated art in many game engines, including ours. There are some things where 
we know it can't have been made in certain other game engines because they don't have those features. So some of, some of the ones that are more that, that are aimed to an earlier or an even earlier audience than us. So they, they just don't have all the shaders or the depth of objects or all the different platforms. But if you take Game Maker, Unity, and various other high-profile engines, it's very hard to tell which engine it came from unless you can investigate further. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing. We want people. We no. want people. Yeah, it should be about their game. Their game should look how they want it to look, and whatever tool they choose, it should help them as much as it can to make that game play, sound, and look however they want it to look. Hmm. Yeah, and that, well, absolutely. I mean, the game is the the game should be yeah. the star. I guess that's the the point. That's the bit that people are uh, end users, gamers. That's the bit that they're paying their money for, not necessarily. Not at all. No. The functional stuff, yeah, it's, it's kind of it's the, it's a very imperative, uh, necessary, but perhaps not quite as sexy part of the of the whole game buying experience, I guess. Um, is in terms of so along those lines, in terms of kind of the coverage and the way that people talk about games, so press coverage and the way that people talk about games, is there? Um, I don't know if it's is there enough, but is there is is that something that you guys look out for? Like, do you is seeing people talking about um, the tools that are used to make a game in maybe game reviews or maybe sort of deeper features that people might write? Is that something that is interesting and exciting to you? Like, to if if there's a sort of a, a dissection of a game and it talks in depth about how it was made and the and the engine that was made to use it is that something that you guys are like you i don't know that you sort of actively hunt out or is that just something that goes on in the background i mean have, have and, we know, find the, the coverage have we find a, um, an article where it's uh, you know some indie game going on about it and if they're talking about game maker and how they used it it'll be interesting to see the issues they had using it um if they just said i use game maker uh, that's it that's okay it's a nice game well done um, if they say, you know, this, it was really good at this, not good at that, then we can take it on board and see if there's areas we can improve. So it's always interesting in terms of that feedback I was on about, you know, get that feedback loop going to try and improve the tool, um, where the primary interest is. Yeah, and it's, it's certainly, for us, it's certainly interesting to read about likes and dislikes of all the tools out there, including our own, because we can, we can learn just like everyone else can learn. And <clears throat> it's something that a certain proportion of the general gamer audience, they are interested in how games are made. Probably because a lot of them might want to create a game themselves. So, you know, we'd certainly encourage people to, whatever tool they're making, we'd certainly encourage people to talk a little bit about how your game is made. And it does seem to suit well, particularly for the indie developers and the hobby developers, because they're free to talk as they wish. They don't have to go through a PR department. They don't have to get approval on everything. So if they've got an interesting technique that they'd like to share with the world or an interesting experience that they would like other people to learn from, you know, I did something good or, oh, don't make the mistake that I made, 
I think those are fantastic stories and they're very helpful for other people out there who may want to be making their own games as well. Mm, mm. Again, that's another thing that's been echoed by certain specific game developers. We've talked about the the type of coverage or the, or the conversations that are had about their games when sometimes saying, yeah, XYZ game is great, um, if you read that sort of 50 times, it loses some of it. It's lovely, yeah. but it loses some of its yeah. shine. But when you come across an article or a review that even if they don't like the thing that they're talking about, if, they're to- if they talk about it in, in a constructive and useful way, then sometimes that's more valuable because you can you can do something with that. And that, that sounds like kind of what you were talking about then, that it's 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 good to see those 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 times when people say, This was really good, this wasn't so good because it, it's something that you guys can actually actively take yeah, on. Yeah, it's, it's it often it's something we can do something about it. So, you know, when you put your products mm. out there, when you put your ideas out there then having that ability to, to take the positive and the negative feedback, you know, the criticism and the good points, is very important because it's, it's all about making whatever it is you do even better. For more on games and game creators, visit IndieByDesign.net. Follow Indie by Design on Twitter, Facebook, and by searching Indie by Design on YouTube. Do also consider nipping over to patreon.com slash indiebydesign to see what we have going on over there. It is awesome. Indie by Design podcast episodes are released every Wednesday. See you next week. The music used in this episode is owned and provided by the mighty Ben Prunty.